Das ist die Hörmaschine. Das ist die Hörmaschine Nummer 47. Das ist die Hörmaschine. Hörmaschine 47. Hörmaschine. Today with... Names. How many names? Is there one? How many names has... Die Hörmaschine heute mit... Wie viele Namen hat... Hörmaschine. Wer hat
We must suppose that we've taken a step forward in time and attained the era of a new space age. By now, the nearer planets have been explored, their seas, continents, and skies plotted and mapped. Their inhabitants, for many have been found to possess their own advanced civilizations, drawn within the concordat of a great galactic council. Only the outer cosmos still challenges the courage and endurance of our voyagers across the oceans of space. But interplanetary travel and discovery are no longer the cherished prestige symbol of any single nation or any one group of nations. Having long since composed their differences in a Pax Universalis, the peoples of our planet have pooled their scientific knowledge, skills and resources, even their technicians, in ever more far-reaching probes towards the uncharted horizons of infinity. représentatives d'étudiants de rejeter les provocations de quelques agitateurs professionnels et de coopérer à un apaisement rapide et total. Et s'il n'y avait pas eu les CRS, il n'y aurait pas eu d'émeutes. C'est tout ce que je viens de dire. Si les CRS n'avaient pas été là, il n'y aurait pas eu d'émeutes. Ils seraient partis ce matin au petit jour manger leur café au lait chez eux. Saint-Michel, j'avais dû passer par-dessus la barricade qui se trouvait devant l'école normale supérieure, devant laquelle se, on jetait un véritable mur de grenades. La barricade flambait. Tous les jeunes gens et les jeunes filles qui se trouvaient là étaient plus ou moins gravement intoxiqués, présentaient des troubles de la respiration, des toux spasmodiques. Plusieurs avaient des vomissements dont certains contenaient quelques filets sanglants. Il présentait un état de prostration nerveuse importante. Le CB ou CS, enfin en tout cas le, le produit qui s'appelle orthochlorobenzalvalonitril, 
n'avait jamais été utilisé dans, euh, en France, dans aucune circonstance, notamment évidemment la répression des manifestations. Nous avons enquêté dessus pour le tribunal euh, Russell, euh, sous le nom de CS, il est utilisé par les Américains au Vietnam. Dans certaines conditions d'emploi, c'est ça la chose qui est importante, dans certaines concentrations et dans certaines conditions d'emploi, en particulier dans les espaces clos qui permettent de grosses concentrations, ce gaz peut devenir un gaz extrêmement dangereux et même dans certains cas mortel. Dans les expériences qui ont été réalisées pour le tribunal, aussi bien chez les gros animaux que chez les petits animaux, euh, nous avons trouvé d'importantes lésions et je crois que ça, ce sont des données tout à fait inédites. Je pense que nous sommes seuls en France à les avoir. Et il est à mes yeux tout à fait indiscutable que, dans ce qui concerne l'utilisation de ce produit, les manifestants de vendredi et peut-être ceux d'avant ont été des cobayes, et que d'ailleurs, en quelque sorte, la préfecture l'a reconnu, puisque dans les, la presse de samedi soir, il était admis déjà qu'une arme nouvelle avait été utilisée. Je m'appelle Georges Matéi, je suis cinéaste. J'ai été frappé dans le dos, dans les reins, et nous avons été jetés brutalement dans un car qui s'attenait avenue des Gobelins. Alors là, je suis arrivé dans le car, on m'a jeté à terre, et j'ai vu 35 gars dans un état absolument lamentable. Tous blessés à la tête, au visage, sanglants, par terre. Et un, et un groupe de flics, dirigé par un d'entre eux, bon, qui était le meneur de jeu en quelque sorte, qui tapait régulièrement sur les gens les plus blessés. Ça a duré comme ça pendant longtemps, des gifles et des coups de matraque. C'était des flics de Paris. Ils avaient des matraques blanches couvertes de sang. Et pendant tout le voyage, ils ont matraqué les 35 étudiants qui étaient là. Mais et en, et en frappant toujours les plus blessés. Ils ont injurié, euh, moi je vous passerai au, au lance-flammes, d'ailleurs je ne sais pas pourquoi on vous a monté dans le car, on aurait dû vous laisser par terre, cette fois-ci on est venu pour vous écraser, on vous a écrasé, et ça a duré comme ça jusqu'à Beaujon. Un peu avant Beaujon, un, bri, un brigadier est venu, a pris les matraques sanglantes, et a sorti de nouvelles matraques propres. Nous sommes entrés à Beaujon, et là on nous a mis dans la petite euh, église désaffectée, les blessés sont restés sans soins, blessés graves, hein, le crâne ouvert, continuant à saigner 5h30, 5h30 sans soins. Ensuite, ils ont été soignés et ils nous ont rejoints après soins dans la, cage, dans la cage à poules où nous étions 80, un endroit où habituellement où il y a 25 personnes.
When do we get a DC fix, Jerry? 30 seconds, Skipper. Ship on course, sir. We'll reach DC point at 1701. That's less than three minutes now. Chief, we'll drop back below light speed in about three minutes. Got your breakable gear stored? Aye, aye, sir. DC set and punched on, Skipper. All right, attention. Captain to crew. All hands squared away to decelerate. DC stations. Pass the alert. Aye, aye, sir. Combat stations. Blast the men. Activate the smoke. Radio contact, sir. There's a voice here. Human? Yes, sir. Sounds like it. Boots it on the speaker. Spaceship. Identify yourself. You are being tracked. Got me in front. Yes, sir. United Pilots Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Who? Edward Morbius. Morbius E, Ph.D., Lit D, Expedition Philologist. What do you wish here, Cruiser? We're your relief, sir. We're very glad to find you alive. Dr. Morbius, are you there? Actually, I appreciate your concern. But absolutely no assistance of any kind is required. Well, the red carpet treatment, huh? Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair 4. Let me repeat. I'm in no sort of difficulty here. Your best procedure will be to turn back at once, without landing. Sorry, sir, but those aren't my orders. Commander, if you sit down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of either your ship or your crew. Dr. Morbius, I require landing coordinates. I'll be obliged if you'll supply me with them. Very well. I wash my hands of all responsibility.
sign of any living being. Thank you, Bosun. Look at the color of that sky. That's fantastic greenish yellow. Fantastic, Doc, but I'll still take blue. Oh, I don't know. The sky, the desert, the mountains. I think a man could get used to this and learn to love it. You uh, better check your command, Mike Skipper. Yeah, good idea. Chief. Sir. You're in command now, Quinn, back there in the ship. You keep right at those instruments while we look around. Aye, aye, sir. Hey, what's this dust coming? Dust? Column of dust sweeping towards us over the desert. It must be a vehicle of some sort. It looks like we're being met. Bosun, like your men. Aye, aye, sir. The speed he's traveling. That driver must be a madman. What driver? You're right. There's a mechanical creature in charge of it. It's coming over to us. Take it steady now. Welcome to Altair 4, gentlemen. It talks. I am to transport you to the residence. If you do not speak English, I am at your disposal with 187 other languages, along with their various dialects and subtongues. No, uh, colloquial English will do fine, thank you. Ed, this is no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Hmm. Well, it's a nice climate you have here, Robbie. Uh, high oxygen content. I rarely use it myself, sir. With my metallic structure, it promotes rust. Uh, hey, Doc, uh, is, it, uh, is it a male or a female? <laughs> Cookie, I really couldn't say. In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Will you get in the vehicle, gentlemen? Uh, Doc, Jerry, come along with me. Right, right. Quinn, trace this vehicle. If I blink red back to you, you... I'll bring the tractor in a hurry, sir. Right. Hey, well, Skipper. Just room for you. Passengers will please fasten their seat belt. run amok in a very affluent society. Wild things are happening. I think it's very exciting. I'm an artist. Well, this show's been called The Responsive Eye because the attempt was to find a title for the exhibition that would indicate an activity, not, not a kind of art. In other words, I 
I uh, wouldn't have wanted to call it optical art because this is a very limited term, which is included in the, included in the exhibition. Uh, but when we speak about the eye responding, it emphasizes the fact that what goes on in these works of art are essentially perceptual experiences. Objects which the eye not only looks at uh, the way you get ordinary things, but objects which cause the vision and I think one could say a new way. Many of these effects which you see around here are things which we have studied in psychology and used in psychology for 30 or 40 years. Uh, the grouping effects by color which you get if you, if you make a square out of, out of dots of the same color, you see the square. And one sees ephemeral diamonds of varying reds which are not in fact painted, but created by colored dots put in front of the picture surface so that your eye fuses an entirely new color. Your perceptual experience does not conform with physical fact. All these things appear here as, as, as magic, as indeed they are. Although this picture by the American artist Larry Coombs is large, and some of his pictures are even much larger, I think uh, this breaks away from many of the other pictures in the room because this surely could be called an optical. In that, quite intentionally, he has arranged these little ovals of green, uh, olive, and uh, bright cerulean blue to create an auxiliary design which is purely visual. Distribution of his spots, as we say, seems to have more interest and doesn't violate the optical sense. The one with the, with the orange circles that are jumping? Yeah. Except they're really green, Charlie. Well, here you have some interesting figure and ground effects. You see these, I don't know whether you can see it, these are cutouts. That is, there's a, a this is a green board in front, and then there's, there are these cutouts. Now, um, as you look at it, you can see them as holes because there's a light coming from above and uh, showing it to you. But if you cover it up, and probably the artist wanted it that way, you can see immediately how now the circle comes to the fore, and you see a positive object and probably a round object because now the shades tend to, to round it and it comes forward. Much of what you're seeing here can be explained on uh, principles of vision and ideas of vision which have been established way back in the early and the middle of the 19th century. What we're dealing with are optical illusions. The idea of where a shadow falls on something tells you whether something is indented or whether it actually is concave or convex. If you take a picture of one of these things which looks like it's convex side down, it'll look concave to you because the, the shadow which is cast in your experience either falls below or above depending on the fact that the sun's up above and would really give you that impression. Many of these effects do not seem to take place in the retina, at least I don't think so. But these do. What you see in this particular case are after images of these circuits. And 
uh, I don't know whether it will show in the reproduction, but as you look at the originals, the after images of the blue and the black appear on the red background and they dance around on this red background. And again, you have a subjective spectacle, a spectacle which is not put in by the artist, which is not controlled by the artist, but a sub subjective movement uh, produced in this case by, by retinal fatigue. So in other words, the brightest part of the picture is what is happening to you, not really what is going on on the canvas. An optical carnival. This very long processional painting at 16 feet wide uh, is by a young Washington painter, Gene Davis. And the picture moves uh, from left to right as we walk along, uh, almost like a piece of music. And I know that the artist thinks very much in terms of rhythms, music, jazz, in making these pictures. We're now leaving the room and the group of rooms with uh, brilliant color to something just as brilliant but precisely opposite. You see ahead of you what appears to be four undulating planes, concave and convex, in black and white. As we approach closer and closer, you'll see that this is not actual three dimensions. In other words, this is not a piece of sculpture. This is not a relief. Part of it is certainly that a human being would be willing to sit down and make, let's say, 5,000 dots. You see, means a kind of a combination of masochism and protest. Partly as the victim of it, partly as you are the rebel against it. And, um, and this certainly shows in the process because you must not only look at what, at the product of this, at what is being done, but how it is done, and imagine the man who makes it. One of the most interesting phenomena uh, that uh, the development of perceptual art and optical art have produced is the biggest wave of painting in pure black and white, that is painting without gray, uh, that the world has ever seen. And here we have examples from all over the world. Uh, painting by Jeffrey Steele of England, uh, an American painter, Commodore, dynamic canvas by the English artist Bridget Riley, all of them in austere, simple lines, forms, and shapes in black and white, all of them uh, acting in such a way that vision is stimulated. Vision is based on discrimination. And his vision is based on the distinction between things which are different from each other. If you put the human mind in a situation in which this distinction is no longer there, you get your brain in a situation in which, in which the eye jumps the track. You jump from one groove to the other because these lines can no longer be distinguished from each other. And I think this is what gives you this, this profoundly disturbing effect. It's actually the things I detest. I don't like all those things that make my eyes bling. If you, if you go from this, for instance, to this one, which is, um, I take it, the most uh, traditional painting in the show, then you can see immediately that the eye functions um, in the usual old-fashioned way because you can tell these, these objects from each other, they don't interfere with each other. 
And, and I think this is the main distinction. While here you don't know where you are. The logic in it is a very important aspect that we mustn't, mustn't underplay. Again, I think I can speak for all the paintings. They, they are logical structures, much more than, than uh, you know, than optical tricks. They have an optical trick. They have an optical sensation. They produce a sensation. The sensation aspect of them is important. Yes, it's important, but only insofar as it's it engages the attention. Do you understand? It engages the attention while uh, the other really more important things. And in this way, it's not so different from any other sort of art going back. It's got roots. It's got roots to this kind of art. This belongs into a development we have had in the 20th century of what you might call anonymous art. I think this is the latest phase of anonymous art in the sense that it looks as though it were not done by anybody in particular, you see. And I think this has to do with the general development of a surrender, of the surrender of the human privilege of, of, of expressing meaning, which is surrendered to something outside of the human mind. Also by Vassarelli is this 10-foot rectangular panel made of rectangles and parallelograms of black on uh, silver colored metal which simply by the positions of the shapes uh, animates the surface gives it motion and also gives it depth you find in many of the things we look at here that motion is very important not motion that uh, is produced mechanically, but motion that is produced physiologically, subjectively, psychologically. And this sort of thing I've used in lectures to show how the three-dimensional effect comes about. When you have a, when you have square shapes, they will stay flat in the plane, as you can see it on the side of the painting. And then as soon as you tilt it, you get the three-dimensional effect, you get things coming forward and going backward, and you lose your plane, and it is this, this special twilight, you know, this no-man's land of space, which seems to be explored. They're all works which move as we move, uh, because the blacks and the whites are interrupted in various ways. Many of these we call now moiré pattern. It's, this is from the French term for watered silk. And by this we describe an effect which occurs when it's crossing at, a, at an angle which is not too great, produce these amazing uh, movements, vibrations, uh, curvilinear forms of various kinds. I thought you might like to see some of the debris or the slag heap, as I call it, out of which I work. These are uh, the raw materials, for example. This is a film of black lines. And these are photographs of some of the black lines. Uh, by putting, for example, this film over this photograph, uh, the illusion of movement. So, because this is actual movement, but I'm turning it so that uh, you can see it in the camera. Uh, this still is only the raw material so far as I'm concerned, because I only use the moiré patterns uh, 
as a help to delineate the planes and the edges that I'm involved with. Yeah, it's a beautiful work. Makes me feel delighted. Oh, yes, it's a perfectly remarkable picture. Nice to look at, and even when I move from different points of view, I see different aspects of the painting. It's constantly changing. In fact, when I look at it now, it sort of looks like uh, the inside of a flower, which I get the very, very stock kind of response, but it's very, very legitimate, you know. And it's just like optical painting of all times. Painting is always uh, related to that in one way or another. I mean, whether it be the Impressionist painters who were concerned with optics, or maybe Raphael, who talked about it from the inside out, mm -hmm. but it's always concerned with the same issues, you know, how to make art and how to make people look at things and learn something about their own lives. Well, this is, of course, the famous uh, Moiré effect. Now there, that's something. Which the scientists have been using a great deal. It's the sort of thing which you get if you take two regular patterns and you overlap them and you move them against each other. Then you get a new set of shapes which you can use scientifically for various purposes. Now, the interesting thing aesthetically, I think, is that here you're getting shapes which are not done by, by any person. That is, you're relegating, again, the, the task of, um, of producing shape to a mechanical medium. And it is a medium which makes them move, which takes the definiteness away from them. So you get something which you can see why it would be in the modern taste. It is a kind of, it's a mobile outside of space, you know, a purely subjective mobile uh, which has been produced there. And I think as such, intriguing. And the question is again, what sense there could be in it? For me, this is uh, raw material, beautiful raw material. There's no doubt that of the perceptual artists of the world, of the colorists, of the teachers who have influenced the entire movement of perceptual art and optical art, Albers is one of the most important. You'll notice in these pictures, all of them are made in the same way. Each picture is a nest of squares in which the color is adjusted so delicately, so precisely with such knowledge that what one sees is not uh, the physical application of paint, but uh, an, a, well, uh, the word I always come to for this is gaseous. The pictures are translucent, even transparent. They seem to hang before one's eyes in midair, and this is because they are a creation of one's experiences. You see, I'm the father, and I'm not supposed to say something bad or good about my I'm kind of surprised to see uh, people like Albers here. I didn't realize their powerful influence. His influence, I think, uh, is strongly felt uh, through the through the show. I know there are, there are artists here who uh, studied with Albers, uh, friends of mine, uh, and others. And I think that uh, Albers is a pioneer in this field. I have had to wait 50 years. Until, until people finally look or look to me as if they look with my eyes, you know. Finally, this is accepted. That took, that took 50 years. So that's a nice surprise. Here are some pictures which, uh, uh, just in a tentative way and not as a category, 
I have called invisible paintings because uh, if the gallery is crowded with bright pictures, if the observer is in a hurry, he doesn't see anything at all. Well, you know, I attacked, sort of attacked Weinhardt in my book. Yes. Reinhardt, Weinhardt. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think that's much more interesting than the absolutely black one, which I really couldn't see very much in that. To respond to what the artist is saying in these works requires time, it requires thought. Some are very brutal, but some are very delicate, and the delicate ones are like. This section of the exhibition is made up uh, almost entirely of reliefs and objects but objects which exist not for their actual physical form, the way uh, traditional sculpture does in which one wants to touch it with one's hands, but objects which exist for their effect on what you see. Uh, a marvelous example is this work by Julio Lepar, uh, a South American artist now working in Paris, a member of the group de Recherche Visuelle, the uh, appropriately titled the Visual Research Group. And as you see, by virtue of a plane in the center on which uh, uh, sections of circles are drawn, we get reflections in curved mirrors in the back which move in a marvelous and almost frightening way. Most of the things here that you see are based on the adequacy of the image plus your own experience. The less adequate the image, perhaps the, the more it can be confused with whether it's coming out or going in. The more adequate the image, the less chance there is of it changing. In other words, something which really is drawn so it looks like a box is a box. Something which suggests a box could be a box which is actually coming out at you, or it could be something which is going back in. Here is a work that is really different from any in the exhibition, although it's related to it. It's by the Israeli artist who works in Paris and Israel, uh, Yaakov Agam. And as we move, gradually you see colors coming from the other side of the projection, beginning to blend. But as one continues toward the left, the design hardens. Finally, to end up at the far left with a totally clear design which could be painted on a flat canvas. If your medium does no longer serve a definite expression, then you let the medium take over and let the medium talk and you explore the medium. And very much of this is, is at the play level, isn't it? If you look at people's reactions to it, they are delighted in a playful way. Boo. <laughs> it was fun. Hello, darling. What do you think of this show? Do you think this is a fun show? I got my shoes at Orvox uh -huh. and the tights at Macy's and the dress at Bloomingdale. It is terrible, really. Sincerely, it is terrible. Ladies and gentlemen, this stuff is terrible. I don't think it's very exciting. I own a few people. I think the English are the best. Of course, uh, it's not because you're here, but because I have a Riley and a, a Steele. And uh, I think really that all this movement was started by the English. Right, I'd, I'd love to buy one for my museum. You'd like to buy one for But they said they're not for sale here. No, I don't call it op art. I think it's perfectly ridiculous. I bought a Bridget Rally long before it was op art, as I did um, 
uh, that was an invention by American journalists. I see. And I hope the British haven't picked it up, but no doubt they unfortunately will. We picked up pop art from you, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think both terms are reprehensible and unfortunate. I think, it's, I think it's a very interesting experiment. I don't think it's art. I think the show is delightful, but let's not call it op art. I think we picked, we in the museum have picked the right title. The responsive eye. It's the responsive eye, and you let it go with that, but how can you include Albers and a foister, for instance. A foister depends on your moving your head like this. And Albers, you can soak yourself in as you can in a Rothko, which has nothing to do with, with the responsive eye. On the other hand, it's nice to make different slices through art and to show them. That's fine. But just leave them out of architecture. Fine. I'm in the fashion field. And uh, last fall, it suddenly occurred to me that uh, the idea of the optical illusions where uh, you know, on a flat surface and still objects, you still are able to create the feeling of movement, that it might be a good idea to experiment and see if I couldn't make some print fabrics out of it. And so I took four paintings which I owned, one this Bridget Riley, one an Anishkevich or Vassarelli, and a Stanjak, and I uh, had print fabrics made out of them, not exactly as the paintings were done because they had to be ordered in accordance with uh, how a fabric has to be cut and worked. And uh, as I turn to this painting, for example, this line, which is the greatest amount of optical illusion in this Bridget Riley, it turned the other way on the dress so that it is descend to one side of the dress. Of course, the styles, due to uh, the excitement in the fabric itself, all had to be basically uh, very simple. But I did even manage to create two that were evening dresses. One in, uh, from an Anishkevich painting in uh, red chiffon, and uh, one in a uh, linen-y fabric uh, from a Vassarelli with a pleated skirt that uh, when you walk, it's just dazzling. It didn't just come up out of the ground. It came out of such a dedicated men as Brokhoff and Kenneth See, Nolan. I find I'm a little dizzy, and uh, my eyes feel very stimulated after looking at it. It's um, a lot of paintings you look at, and you think, well, what's the form? What's the structure? And in this, it just affects you immediately. You don't even have to think about it. Some of them, but some of them I wouldn't dare have in my house. <laughs> Hang it in my home? Yes. Yes, I would. Like, you mean the whole show? Well, I'm enjoying it. I just wonder how long it's going to stay around. I think it's excellent, despite of, uh, the fact that I'm very conservative. I think it's marvelous. This is just a rocket, as you say in American language. Believe me, it is nothing. But I've been dazzled uh, by what I've seen already. This is a factory of brainwashing, where they wash the brain. I wish it was more uh, <laughs> quieter, you know, and wouldn't upset my stomach so much. Right. But I think that the problems they're involved in are at least uh, plastic enough to be considered here. Yeah, I think it's a very stimulating exhibition. Uh, I hope to come back tomorrow and really see the exhibition. Uh, yeah, as much work as it is here tonight, it's really too much to take in at one time. Uh, there are lots of possibilities for many new directions. As a human being, I think is a rather uh, brilliant uh, concoction. We had the construction without the impulse. 
in the in the school of Mondrian, and we had the impulse without the construction in the in the in the abstract expressionism. And here you have both of them together, but both of them surrendered. That is neither the construction nor the impulse comes from the artist. Construction is done by the geometry, and the impulse is done by the physiology. And this is what you get. I didn't know what to expect. No, it's really doing something to my mind. I don't understand it. I think they're very, very intriguing. Well, it's all technique. Oh, it's lovely. I'm delighted to see such marvelous coloring of art. It's almost hypnotic. I think this sort of painting has content in precisely the same way that music has content. It looks like monograph records. There are no great hidden meanings. Confuses me. It's very interesting. All these seem to be moving. I don't know. It's a kind of a thing uh, a madman might put on a cell wall in order to drive somebody crazy. I guess that's an emotional response. I just get angry. I have a lot to say, but I won't say it. It's just a little bewildering and upsetting, and I prefer not to look at it after a while. I want them to move. This sort of thing right here, I, I don't much uh, care for. I don't get anything from it at all. This is what art's come to. It's stunningly decorative. It wouldn't make good linoleum. I'd say they're all more or less mathematical, aren't they? They've got a mathematical implications. Oh, I think it's very nice. It's interesting, it's very clean. Brilliant. It's fun, you know. I'm speechless.
welchen Namen? Wie viele Namen? Wie viele Namen hat? How many names have? Wie viele? Gibt es einen? Is there one? Der Maschine 47.
This is a slightly unusual request, said Dr. Wagner, with what he hoped was commendable restraint. As far as I know, it's the first time anyone's been asked to supply a Tibetan monastery with an automatic sequence computer. I don't wish to be inquisitive, but I should hardly have thought that your, um, establishment had much use for such a machine. Could you explain just what you intend to do with it? Gladly, replied the Lama, readjusting his silk robes and carefully putting away the slide rule he had been using for currency conversions. Your Mark V computer can carry out any routine mathematical operation involving up to ten digits. However, for our work, we are interested in letters, not numbers. As we wish you to modify the output circuits, the machine will be printing words, not columns of figures. I, I don't quite understand. This is a project on which we have been working for the last three centuries. Since the Lamasery was founded, in fact. It is somewhat alien to your way of thought, so I hope you will listen with an open mind while I explain it. Naturally. It is really quite simple. We have been compiling a list which shall contain all the possible names of God. I beg your pardon? We have reason to believe, continued the Lama imperturbably, that all such names can be written with not more than nine letters in an alphabet we have devised. And you have been doing this for three centuries? Yes. We expected it would take us about 15,000 years to complete the task. Oh. Dr. Wagner looked a little dazed. Now I see why you wanted to hire one of our machines. But exactly what is the purpose of this project? The Lama hesitated for a fraction of a second, and Wagner wondered if he had offended him. If so, there was no trace of annoyance in the reply. Call it ritual, if you like, but it's a fundamental part of our belief. All the many names of the Supreme Being, God, Jehovah, Allah, and so on, they are only man-made labels. There is a philosophical problem of some difficulty here, which I do not propose to discuss, but somewhere among all the possible combinations of letters that can occur are what one may call the real names of God. By systematic permutation of letters, we have been trying to list them all. I see. You've been starting at A-A-A-A-A-A-A and working up to Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. Exactly, though we use a special alphabet of our own. Modifying the electromatic typewriters to deal with this is, of course, trivial. A rather more interesting problem is that of devising suitable circuits to eliminate ridiculous combinations. For example, no letter must occur more than three times in succession. Three? Surely you mean two. Three is correct. 
I am afraid it would take too long to explain why, even if you understood our language. I'm sure it would, said Wagner hastily. Go on. Luckily, it will be a simple matter to adapt your automatic sequence computer for this work, since once it has been programmed properly, it will permute each letter in turn and print the result. What would have taken us 15,000 years, it will be able to do in a hundred days. Dr. Wagner was scarcely conscious of the faint sounds from the Manhattan streets far below. He was in a different world, a world of natural, not man-made mountains. High up in their remote areas, these monks had been patiently at work, generation after generation, compiling their lists of meaningless words. Was there any limit to the follies of mankind? Still, he must give no hint of his inner thoughts. The customer was always right. There's no doubt, replied the doctor, that we can modify the Mark V to print lists of this nature. I'm much more worried about the problem of installation and maintenance. Getting out to Tibet in these days is not going to be easy. We can arrange that. The components are small enough to travel by air. That is one reason why we chose your machine. If you can get them to India, we will provide transport from there. And you want to hire two of our engineers? Yes, for the three months that the project should occupy. I've no doubt that personnel can manage that. Dr. Wagner scribbled a note on his desk pad. Uh, there are just two other points. Before he could finish the sentence, the Lama had produced a small slip of paper. This is my certified credit balance at the Asiatic Bank. Thank you. Uh, it appears to be uh, adequate. The second matter is so trivial that I hesitate to mention it, but it's surprising how often the obvious gets overlooked. What source of electrical energy have you? A diesel generator providing 50 kilowatts at 110 volts. It was installed about five years ago and is quite reliable. It's made life at the Lamasery much more comfortable, but of course it was really installed to provide power for the motors driving the prayer wheels. Of course, echoed Dr. Wagner. I should have thought of that. The view from the parapet was vertiginous, but in time one gets used to anything. After three months, George Hanley was not impressed by the 2,000-foot swoop into the abyss or the remote checkerboard of fields in the valley below. He was leaning against the wind-smoothed stones and staring morosely at the distant mountains whose names he had never bothered to discover. This, thought George, was the craziest thing that had ever happened to him. Project Shangri-La, some wit back at the labs had christened it. For weeks now, the Mark V had been churning out acres of sheets covered with gibberish. Patiently, inexorably, the computer had been rearranging letters in all their possible combinations, exhausting each class before going on to the next. As the sheets had emerged from the electromatic typewriters,
The monks had carefully cut them up and pasted them into enormous books. In another week, heaven be praised, they would have finished. Just what obscure calculations had convinced the monks that they needn't bother to go on to words of ten, twenty, or a hundred letters, George didn't know. One of his recurring nightmares was that there would be some change of plan, and that the High Lama, whom they'd naturally called Sam Jaffe, though he didn't look a bit like him, would suddenly announce that the project would be extended to approximately A.D. 2060. They were quite capable of it.
George heard the heavy wooden door slam in the wind as Chuck came out onto the parapet beside him. As usual, Chuck was smoking one of the cigars that made him so popular with the monks, who, it seemed, were quite willing to embrace all the minor and most of the major pleasures of life. That was one thing in their favor. They might be crazy, but they weren't blue noses. Those frequent trips they took down to the village, for instance. Listen, George, said Chuck urgently. I've learned something that means trouble. What's wrong? Isn't the machine behaving? That was the worst contingency George could imagine. It might delay his return, and nothing could be more horrible. The way he felt now, 
Even the sight of a TV commercial would seem like manna from heaven. At least it would be some link with home. No, it's nothing like that. Chuck settled himself on the parapet, which was unusual because normally he was scared of the drop. I've just found out what all this is about. What do you mean? I thought we knew. Sure, we know what the monks are trying to do, but we didn't know why. It's the craziest thing. Tell me something new, growled George. But old Sam's just come clean with me. You know the way he drops in every afternoon to watch the sheets roll out? Well, this time he seemed rather excited, or at least as near as he'll ever get to it. When I told him that we were on the last cycle, he asked me, in that cute English accent of his, if I'd ever wondered what they were trying to do. I said, sure, and he told me. Go on, I'll buy it. Well, they believe that when they have listed all his names, and they reckon that there are about nine billion of them, God's purpose will be achieved. The human race will have finished what it was created to do, and there won't be any point in carrying on. Indeed, the very idea is something like blasphemy. Then what do they expect us to do? Commit suicide? There's no need for that. When the list's completed, God steps in and simply winds things up. Bingo! Oh, I get it. When we finish our job, it will be the end of the world. Chuck gave a nervous little laugh. That's just what I said to Sam. And do you know what happened? He looked at me in a very queer way, like I'd been stupid in class, and said, It's nothing as trivial as that. George thought this over for a moment. That's what I call taking the wide view, he said presently. But what do you suppose we should do about it? I don't see that it makes the slightest difference to us. After all, we already knew that they were crazy. Yes, but don't you see what may happen? When the list's complete and the last trump doesn't blow, or whatever it is they expect, we may get the blame. It's our machine they've been using. But I don't like the situation one bit. I see, said George slowly. You've got a point there. But, but this sort of thing's happened before, you know? When I was a kid down in Louisiana, we had a crackpot preacher who once said the world was going to end next Sunday. Hundreds of people believed him, even sold their homes. Yet when nothing happened, they didn't turn nasty, as you'd expect. They just decided that he'd made a mistake in his calculations and went right on believing. I guess some of them still do. Well, this isn't Louisiana, in case you hadn't noticed. There are just two of us and hundreds of these monks. I like them, and I'll be sorry for old Sam when his life work backfires on him. But all the same, I wish I was somewhere else. I've been wishing that for weeks, but there's nothing we can do until the contract's finished and the transport arrives to fly us out. Of course, said Chuck thoughtfully, we could always try a bit of sabotage. 
act like hell we could. That would make things worse. Not the way I meant. Look at it like this. The machine will finish its run four days from now, on the present twenty-hour-a-day basis. The transport calls in a week. Okay, then all we need to do is to find something that needs replacing during one of the overhaul periods, something that will hold up the work for a couple of days. We'll fix it, of course, but not too quickly. If we time matters properly, we can be down at the airfield when the last name pops out of the register. They won't be able to catch us then. I don't like it, said George. It will be the first time I ever walked out on a job. Besides, it would make them suspicious. No, I'll sit tight and take what comes. I still don't like it, he said. Seven days later, as the tough little mountain ponies carried them down the winding road. And don't you think I'm running away because I'm afraid. I'm just sorry for those poor old guys up there, and I don't want to be around when they find what suckers they've been. wonder how Sam will take it. It's funny, replied Chuck, but when I said goodbye, I got the idea he knew we were walking out on him and that he didn't care because he knew the machine was running smoothly and that the job would soon be finished. After that, well, of course, for him there just isn't any after that. George turned in his saddle and stared back up the mountain road. This was the last place from which one could get a clear view of the lamasery. The squat, angular buildings were silhouetted against the afterglow of the sunset. Here and there, lights gleamed like portholes in the side of an ocean liner. Electric lights, of course, sharing the same circuit as the Mark V. How much longer would they share it, wondered George. Would the monks smash up the computer in their rage and disappointment? Or would they just sit down quietly and begin their calculations all over again? He knew exactly what was happening up on the mountain at this very moment. The High Lama and his assistants would be sitting in their silk robes, inspecting the sheets as the junior monks carried them away from the typewriters and pasted them into the great volumes. No one would be saying anything. The only sound would be the incessant patter, the never-ending rainstorm of the keys hitting the paper, for the Mark V itself was utterly silent as it flashed through its thousands of calculations a second. Three months of this, thought George, was enough to start anyone climbing up the wall. There she is, called Chuck, pointing down into the valley. Ain't she beautiful? She certainly was, thought George. The battered old DC-3 lay at the end of the runway like a tiny silver cross. In two hours she would be bearing them away to freedom and sanity. It was a thought worth savoring, like fine liqueur. George let it roll round his mind as the pony trudged patiently down the slope. The swift night of the high Himalayas was now almost upon them. Fortunately, the road was very good, as roads went in that region, and they were both carrying torches. There was not the slightest danger, only a certain discomfort from the bitter cold. 
The sky overhead was perfectly clear and ablaze with the familiar, friendly stars. At least there would be no risk, thought George, of the pilot being unable to take off because of weather conditions. That had been his only remaining worry. He began to sing, but gave it up after a while. This vast arena of mountains, gleaming like whitely hooded ghosts on every side, did not encourage such ebullience. Presently, George glanced at his watch. Should be there in an hour, he called back over his shoulder to Chuck. Then he added, in an afterthought, Wonder if the computer's finished its run. It was due about now. Chuck didn't reply, so George swung round in his saddle. He could just see Chuck's face, a white oval turned toward the sky. Look, whispered Chuck, and George lifted his eyes to heaven. There is always a last time for everything. Overhead, without any fuss, the stars were going out. Oh, my God.
L'amiral cherche une maison à louer. Ahoy, ahoy!
Machine. We're machine 47. Today with names. How many names? <laughs> 